Please open your Bibles with me again to the book of Romans, to chapter 6. This morning we'll study verses 15 through 19. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19, we pick up right where we left off last Lord's Day. Here, in Romans 6, where the apostle turns his attention to the application of doctrine, so that faith influence practices. And so, as we study this, may the Lord give us grace to hear his voice and to receive benefit from it. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. This is God's word. Let's pray together. O Lord in heaven, we have heard the scriptures read, and we plead with you for scriptural and biblical understanding. O Lord, that our minds would have the sense of the glory of Christ and his gospel. O Lord, that we would understand what it is that you call us to as Christians. O Lord, that you would cast out any misunderstanding. O Lord, that you would help us to be a people who would live in heartfelt obedience to the Lord of glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good doctrine, poorly understood and poorly applied, is spiritually disastrous. Good doctrine, poorly understood and poorly applied, ends in spiritual disaster. And you see, in the scripture that we're studying this morning, that's Paul's concern. He's aware that his readers are going to take this up and that as they read his words, they may use it as an opportunity to do whatever they like. He's concerned with misunderstanding. He's concerned with misapplication. Specifically, of the gospel truth of Christian liberty. That's what he's concerned with. That in Christ, a Christian has freedom. And he's concerned that people will use this doctrine, this wonderful and true doctrine, to then turn it to a life of godliness and of self-indulgence. And so this morning, Paul draws our attention to three different topics in the few verses that we intend to study. The first of them is in verse 15, gospel freedom. The topic of gospel freedom. Then in verse 16, gospel reality. 
gospel reality. And then in verses 17 through 19, gospel obedience. Gospel obedience. So as we look at verse 15, as we just read it a few moments ago, you may note that there are echoes from a little while ago when we were in the beginning of chapter 6. We have this second question from the Apostle Paul as he writes as if he's in dialogue, having a conversation with somebody, and it's with you, it's with me, his reader, and he says, what then are we to sin? Well, that sounds so much like verse 1, doesn't it? Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, Paul here is very concerned. I've already mentioned that in the introduction to our sermon. But he's concerned about people who have this wonderful doctrine, then taking it at face value and running with it to do with it whatever in the world they may want to do. You see, in verse 1, we have a text that's connected to the previous verse in chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. So if you'll turn your attention there with me, we'll give this section a reading as well. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death... Grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a text full of meaning, and it's almost like dynamite. It's explosive in the truth that it gives to us as God's people. And it's something that Paul is concerned about in verse 1. Look at what he says. He anticipates the question, and it's like a parent dealing with a child. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so you can feel the logic of the person. It's, it's really the logic of a child in a sense. At least a child that doesn't bear up very holy logic. If I sin, I get grace. Well, maybe I sin some more and I get some more grace. Because didn't Paul say that where I sin a lot, I get a whole lot more of his grace? It's transactional in that way. If God's going to forgive me of a lot, if I do a lot against him, well, maybe I should do a lot against him to get forgiven a lot. Paul says, by no means, emphatically. That can't be. It's a false logic. It's not a holy logic. And in verse 15, we return to the same sort of thing. And you have verse 15 in marriage with verse 14. It only makes good and biblical sense. Look at verse 14 of chapter 6. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. It's again a verse with so much. It's got so much of God's grace. It's got so much of his truth. And it's got so much opportunity for the bad logic of immature minds to go and to make the grace of God an opportunity for godlessness. Verse 15, Paul's very concerned, and it's like a parent talking to a kid again. I mean, just take note of this. This is, this is something that Paul's doing almost 
in a paternal way, like a father sitting with a child across the table, knowing that if he says one thing, the kid's going to say, well, Dad, you said I've got to mow the grass every Friday, so that means that I don't need to even think about it on Wednesday or Thursday, right? Or if I forget to do it, that I shouldn't do it on Saturday, I should just wait till the next week and then do it on Friday. This broken logic of immaturity, Paul's concerned with it. But here's the question that he anticipates. What then? Are we to sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. And Paul gives the sort of answer that a dad would give to a child who asks asks a silly question. No! (laughs) This is an emphatic answer. It's very simple. He looks across the table and says, absolutely not! There's something in my household that started to happen, and I think that a lot of parents uh, probably experienced this. I'm, I'm very certain my parents had this from me. Child, ask a foolish question that mom or dad says, no. And then the kid says, but why? But why, dad? Conversation I have all the time. Sons, it's 8.30. It's time for bed, inevitably, every night, at least ten times. But why, Dad? But why do I have to sleep? But why, Dad? Why do I have to go to my bed, not your bed? Dad, but why? Why can't I sit in here on the couch while you read and just stay up with you? And then they look and they have those big, beautiful eyes. I love you, Dad. No, but why? And it's that fallen logic that we then push upon the truth of the gospel, the things that the scriptures tell us. And I want you to consider the question and to hear it in its immaturity and in the danger of it. Are we free to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Has the gospel given us into lawlessness? That's the question. If I'm forgiven anyway, doesn't that just mean I can sin and sin and sin and sin some more? I'm free from the law. There are no rules. I can live however I want. I can stay up however late I want. I can think about whatever I want, eat whatever I want, drink whatever I want, be with whoever I want. It's the thinking of immature people. And it's the thinking that Paul is extremely concerned about in this verse of Scripture. It makes me think about being a teenager. So if any of the teenagers in the room hear me speaking, am I talking to you this morning? Maybe in part, but I promise every adult in the room can relate to this at some level. Whenever teenagers pass the legal age... In the United States, they become legally adults at age 18, at least for most freedoms in the United States. It means a lot of things. You can own property. You can take out a loan if someone is willing to give you a loan from a bank. There are lots of other things that happen. Uh, You can go and, and live by yourself, not under the roof of mom and dad. When you're 17, that's not really a freedom that you have offered to you. But at 18, you can do it. And so the mind of the teenager just thinks, at 18, I'm finally going to be free from the shackles of mom and dad. 
My wings will be able to spread. I'm going to fly. It's going to be great. I'm going to live the life I want to live how I want to live it. If I want to stay up until midnight, 3 o'clock in the morning, I can do whatever I want. I can eat junk food. I can drive fast. I can whatever I want to do. When I want to do it, no laws. Everything is about me and the way I want it to be. How long does that logic hold up for the 18-year-old? How long does it hold up? In my experience, I think it's, at least for some people, it holds up past 18, doesn't it? They go off to university. Some do, some don't. And they have this freedom. They spread their wings and some do what they want. They live lawlessly without the rules of mom and dad. And what happens? Well, sometimes they pay a huge price for it, don't they? Their free and lawless living does what? It affects their grades. It affects their social standing. Sometimes it affects their lives. And it certainly usually affects their relationship to mom and dad. 19 years old, 20 years old, 21 years old. In the United States, they're free to drink. And it can have disastrous effects. And they can do whatever they want. No one can tell them what to do. As that rap song says, can't nobody tell me nothing. Right? I'll do what I want disaster and for some it continues on and it presses into their adult life where they're really beginning to stand on their own feet and they've got bills and they've got to pay those bills and they're accountable to things and they begin to find out over time well whenever I don't have any sense of rules sometimes I break the laws and I end up in the cold steel of chains and handcuffs and behind bars, that there are laws. And if they're not mom and dad's laws, they're the laws of the land, and I'm subject to them in any case. And whenever I break them, there are significant and serious consequences. Some people learn this, 19, 18, 25. Some folks haven't figured it out by 30. They're in a mountain of debt. They have a broken marriage infidelity, broken relationships, lost jobs. Boss says, get here, 8.30 a.m., they drag in at 11 or don't show up at all. Our actions have real consequences. The world isn't a life of unrestrained freedom, a life of anarchy to do with whatever we want. And the gospel is like that in a sense. Our freedoms mirror this in a sense. This unsanctified logic. As Paul has told the truth, sin will have no dominion over you, verse 14, since you are not under the law but under grace. And this immature mind says, well, wow, that sounds great. I've gotten rid of the law. No more rules. The big problem in my life was what? It was the law. It wasn't sin, it wasn't darkness, it wasn't rebellion. It wasn't a life lived against God, it was rather the law that will simply tell me where I have gone wrong. And it's a wrong-mindedness. You can hear it when you use those sort of terms and you can think to yourself, wow, this person has radically misunderstood things. They think that the only thing that makes sin sin and an offense is the law of God. And so the thing that we have to look at as we're in this section about Christian freedom is you have to actually ask the question, what is the law? What's the law that Paul is telling us 
that we are no longer under the dominion of? Well, it's something that God gave. That's the first principle. The law is something God gave. It's his doing. It's his word. In fact, we should be very correct in saying it is his self-revelation. If you were to have a portrait, for instance, of who God is, and a very accurate portrait, a portrait where you could read the, uh, the, the emotion and the intention and the character of a man on his face, it would be the law according to God. Because the law is God telling you the very depths of his heart. It's God telling you who he always has been and always will be in more accurate detail than any portrait, significantly more perfect than anything that could be otherwise conveyed. The scriptures say that the law of God is perfect. It shows to you the things God delights in and the things God dislikes. It shows you his holiness, his goodness. His truth, his eternality, his singularity that there is no other God but him. And it shows you who you are to be in light of him. When I think of the law and I think of this idea that it is his revealing of himself, I think of the best portraiture I've ever seen. I've seen some fairly good portraiture, especially here in this country and in the wonderful museums. And I think uh, of two examples. And this is just a reformed minister going into an art museum and what we're naturally drawn to. I think of Cronach the Elder's portrait of Martin Luther. First time I saw it, I'd heard the legends of Luther. And I looked at this portrait, and you've got this, uh, this depiction of Luther, and they're handful of portraits he's done of him one with a green background and one with a blue background one with a hat on and one with a hat off but in both cases I generally noticed as I faced Luther face to face in this painting he wasn't a very attractive man not altogether offensive but not necessarily all that handsome it's something of a fair likeness you see other different paintings and portraitures of of Luther and they well they kind of all look the same He was working with what the Lord gave him, and it wasn't with dashing good looks. I think also of another painter who painted wonderful things, Albert Durer. You may be familiar with him, the great Renaissance and Reformation painter of Nuremberg and a Protestant painter himself. He uh, he did these portraits called the Four Apostles. They're wonderful. They're huge. If you want to go see the real ones, go to Munich. The Alta Pinacotech, they've got them, they're huge. It's, it's really a, a, a foot to top of the head sort of painting, and they're larger than life. I've, if you've been to my house, you've seen the, the top section of them. So those paintings I've got in my living room, that's those, at least copies. But they go all the way to the ground, and they're noted for their realism. We don't know uh, what the four gospel writers looked like or anything like that. But there are no halos around their heads. It's a dark background. They look like average men. They've got veins in their foreheads. Uh, They've got weathered hands. Shaggy beards. The one that's supposed to be the Apostle Paul. Real shaggy beard. But an interesting piece of realism is the dirt on their feet. If you look at medieval art, you'll never see dirt on the feet of saints. They're spotless. They're holy. They're pure. Durer is saying no. They were average guys saved by grace. They had dirty feet. Jesus 
wash the dirt from their feet. Simple stuff. But the law of God is more direct, more clear, more wonderful, more pure, more accurate than even what the eye can perceive. And I want to express to you what the law of God is in the life of a Christian, at least in a part. The law works like a spotlight. You say, well, hang on a second. It works like a spotlight. And I say to you, yes, it's, it's like a spotlight. You know, one of those great big lights that they might have at a, at a show or a play. And you've got someone that just turns it to put the focus of light right on the main character. And it's bright. And if you're on stage, you can't even look at it. It's like the sun shining into your eyes. And you can see them. And the thing that you can see is all the different you know, character of the person. And you may say, well, okay, pastor, you've already told me it shows me about God. Well, but here's the deal. The, the white shining light of the law of God is actually the white shining light of God's perfection. It's him shining like the sun. And what is he shining down upon? It's you and it's me. I wonder, have you ever been to one of these shows with a spotlight and sat on the front row? It's, those are not the best seats, really. Not really. Because one of the things that you notice is all the horrible, uh, heavy, caked-on makeup that an actor might have to wear. Where If you're in the back row, you don't see it. It just blends and it looks natural. But, but when you're on that front row, they put so much on the person because they know that there are more people in the back of the room than in the front of the room. But in the front of the room, it's grotesque. But just look out of place. It's strange. Well... The light of God's perfections in the law shows to us not really even the makeup that we use to cover over our imperfections, but the real soil of our souls. The law of the God works like a white garment, and our sins are that speck of soil, the dirt that's down on the edge. And it's the brightness and the brilliance of the holiness of God that allows you to pick it out. Because if that was a black garment, you'd never see it. If you ever want lots of dark colors, now you know. The law of God shows us our sins in the light of the holiness of God. And I want to tell you this, Christian. That aspect of the law is not removed from you. That doesn't go anywhere. That remains. It's essential to the law and to the goodness of God that He gives to His people, to you and to me, in the law. That's how we know a portion of Him. That doesn't go anywhere. What are we free of in the law? What are we free of when the gospel redeems us and places us under the dominion of the grace of Christ? Well, it's freedom from the guilt that the law shows us regarding our sin. If the law shows us our sin, it also shows us his perfection. And it says very loudly to us, if you have transgressed the law of God, you're guilty. And what is Paul saying about the grace of the gospel? He's saying that in grace, that guilt has been removed and dealt with. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying the dirt and all the effects of that dirt of sin, all those things that remove from you, you're not under the weight of it or the dark stain that it causes on your life. That thing has been dealt with. And what is grace in any sense according to the law? It is that Jesus took the punishment that the law gave to your sins. You are free from its penalty but there's more you're free from its power you're free from its power what did verse 14 say sin will have no dominion over you you see that's the significant thing that Paul is saying that the Christian is free from the controlling interest that sin has in our lives Where the law would show it to you and ultimately say, keep the law, keep the law perfectly. And you would see in yourselves the fallenness of your sin. And you would ultimately come to yourself and say, I can't do it. I'm in chains. I'm in bondage. And the law only reminds me. It's like a mirror that shines the gleam of my chains. And there's silvery metal back to me. How can I escape? How can I escape? And the Christian has simply told this, that in Christ the chains have been broken. And the law, what does it say to the Christian now? You're free, you're free, you're free. All your sins, all the punishment, all the guilt, all of that's been dealt with already. The law doesn't say look at your guilt. The law says look at him who died because you have been guilty and you no longer are. So what can the law say to the Christian but freedom, freedom, freedom? But in answer to the question, what then are we to sin? Because we're not under law, but under grace. It's silly whenever you put it into those terms, isn't it? You mean to tell me the question is even then can I go and sin as if all I needed was to get free of the law like a a parent that's overbearing? No, no. The issue is at the depth of sin. The law of God is not the issue. The sinfulness of the hearts of men, that's the issue. And the gospel certainly doesn't say, well, if the law depicts godliness then by grace you're free from ever living a life of godliness. Friends, let me instead encourage you to think on it this way. You are free from the accusation of guilt so that you may live in godliness. That's Christian freedom. You are free to live a life of holiness rather than a life of godlessness. We go on and in verse 16 we see gospel reality. Gospel reality. And you may think, well, pastor, I don't know where you're going with this. But in verse 16, Paul starts with the language of obvious fact. Do you not know? Don't you know this? Don't you like when people ask you questions like that? Don't you know you were supposed to do that? Don't you know you're not supposed to do that? Don't you think These obvious things, this question that every living person obviously 
should understand, obviously should know. And then after this question of obviousness, he gives these two different ideals that form for us Christian ethics. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? A or B? Two roads, two different paths, with some inescapable facts about who we are. And so Paul is confronting this other issue with the ideal of Christian liberty. And it is this confusion that so many of us have adopted from this world and the political theologies that exist in the minds of people who want to be their own gods apart from the God of the Bible. And it's this idea, I am ultimately free in every thought, every word, everything, every part of me to do what I please, to live however I want. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nothing can have an effect on me. I am ultimately in control of everything that I do, think, or am. And Paul wants you to simply understand that that is a self-delusion. That is a self-delusion. That none of us are free from our circumstances. None of us are free from our own affections. None of us are free from our own tastes and our neighbors and our weather and our finances and our relationships. So many things in our lives have bearing on us. We are not the captain of our universe. We don't control everything. This magnificent truth is that we are not our own gods because we haven't the power of ultimate freedom. Paul says you just need to get that very, very clearly in your mind. You're going to serve somebody or something. And it just depends on what you're serving. So let's be clear about it, friend. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Well, that's clear, isn't it? In fact, it's so clear you think it's repetitive. It is repetitive. If you submit yourself to somebody as an obedient slave, well, then you're their slave. Yeah, Dad, I got it. It's simple. Son, if I told you to do something, didn't I tell you to do it? Yes, yeah, you did. Well, shouldn't you then do it? It's quite clear. And there are these two different, remember I mentioned these two different paths of Christian ethics these two different ideals really for human life, not just Christian ethics, but the ethics of all humanity. It's either a life in service to sin, is it slave or a life in service to righteousness by obedience to the word of God. Two things, no other options, two things. And people will sit and maybe I have visitors, maybe even members today that say, Pastor, I just don't like things in black and white. I don't like to deal in absolutes. I like to get my theology from Star Wars, right? It's A or B, Pastor. Can't there be so many other different paths? No, 
biblically speaking. These are profoundly broad, at least in one of the options. And also, I might say, extraordinarily narrow and biblically so in the other. A slave to sin, which leads to death, or a slave to righteousness. Sin and righteousness. But notice how Paul talks about these two different paths. He talks about you facing them as if you're in a forked road. And he talks about our presenting ourselves to obey other things. If you present yourself to obey sin and its commands, that when you sin, you are submitting to something. You may be submitting with your eyes, your minds, your hands, your tongue, your heart, however it is, or the whole of all of those things, all at once. And he's saying to you that the relationship of your heart to sin is one that is slavish and demands full and absolute obedience. You don't have absolute freedom. Rather, in this case, you have absolute obedience to sin. That's what's being spoken about. The relationship of a human heart and a mind and a body and the whole of the person is not a thing that is morally neutral. As if you can just sin on this day and then put it right back down and then take up righteousness and then put it right back down and these things are equal. Sin's just what you want to do and, and obviously righteousness is a thing that God wants you to do and those things are just exchangeable. Paul's saying no. He's saying person. He's saying child of God. He's writing to Christians here. He's saying if you engage in sin, you should expect... It's absolute demand as a slave master over your life. That you're offering over your hands and your ankles and you're saying, put them on me, chain me up, imprison me, tell me what to do. I will be your servant. As the months pass on and everything gets colder and colder and it seems like we're in a very level era of coldness in the year, probably going to go till April, if it's anything like past years, I've noticed that sometimes you see people and the evidences of slavery to sin just when you're driving your car around about Stuttgart or wherever you live. And it's usually around U-Bahn stations. And you see people, not picking on anybody, but you see people in absolutely freezing conditions. They're shivering. They've got two coats on. They've got three scarves that you can see this much of them and then their mouths poked out and what are they inevitably doing they're surrounded by a cloud of smoke and they are as it were submission they are in submission to something that is controlling them they could be inside of a warm car house ubon train whatever it is yet here they are they are paying their obedience to something that has mastery over them. And this is the whole realm of addiction, and it's a slavish dependence and obedience to do simply what, whatever that different thing is, whatever it demands. You say, well, pastor, you're just picking on smokers. But friends, let me say this. How about we turn it in different directions? It could be drinking. 
How many foolish things do people do in obedience to a desire to drink? How many foolish things do people do in obedience to a heart that delights in lying? How many ridiculous lies can a person tell because they delight in lying? They're in chains to it. Oh, it's ridiculous. If you plow down, if you think about your own heart and the things you've done in your own life, maybe you have confessions that you have to face yourself. But let me simply say, in a life as a minister, it's astounding at the things that people believe others will believe. And also the links that people go to to uphold and to build this life of lies around themselves. A wandering eye, not captive to a heart given to God, but captive by the heart of harlots. Where will people go to ungodliness and what sort of things will they obey in themselves to pursue sin? Well, it seems to me almost anything. And what Paul is telling you and me is that slavery to sin, it goes to one place and one place only, death either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. The other path in the forked road, the other thing, the other option of human ethics to live a life to God in obedience to him. You're going to obey somebody. Will you obey sin or will you obey the God of heaven? Captive in body and soul. What does it look like? Well, it looks like a life in submission to him where our delights are changed to be his delights. You love the things he loves. The taste that cause you joy are the things that he delights in and that cause him joy. The things that you say are the things that he would say because you delight in the things that he has said. His thoughts then penetrate our thoughts and his words penetrate our hearts and his deeds penetrate our lives. And so we live like him and we think like him and we become his servants. And he is pleased to not only call us servants but children. An exacting slave master or one who would rule you at the deepest part of who you are and call you to obedience in a life of living like him rather than a death caused by sin. And so I ask you, Christian, who are you serving? Who have you given yourself into the hands of and who are you submitting to in unchecked authority? Are you going towards death and walking in chains to sins that you're happy to obey all the way down to the grave? Or do you know the grace of the cross that calls you into obedience and life, and righteousness, and joy, and delight. There are two options. The option of judgment, or the option of grace in the cross of Jesus. In verses 17, 18, in the first portion of 19, 
We look at gospel obedience. We've already spoken about it to some extent. But here in verse 17, Paul begins with a word of thanksgiving. And it's really wonderful because it's directed in a right way. Verse 17, but thanks be to God. Again, he's talking to Christians. But thanks be to God, all the glory given to who it belongs, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. If you listen to the second point just a moment ago, these two different options, slavery to sin or freedom in life and righteousness, becoming a bondservant of Christ in obedience, Paul is saying if you're a Christian, there's really good news. Wonderful news. News that we should praise God for. He's saying simply this, in the two options, you once were a slave to sin, but you're not anymore. That's the first thing you need to see, Christian. That if you belong to Christ by the work of God, you are no longer a slave to sin that will ultimately lead to your death. That's over. God has done away with it. Those chains have been broken. It's wonderful. There is freedom. There is wonderful freedom from sin and death and all that it does in the life of a person. And it's because of what God has done for you. That's the first piece of good news. But then Paul wants to tell you the character of gospel obedience. It's not that you've just been freed from chains to then go do whatever you want, but rather now you're a new person in a new sort of situation and a new relationship and a new service. You have become obedient from the heart. Do you notice the tense there? It is have become. This is a thing that has happened for the Christian. And he's talking to them very clearly. You have become obedient by the work the cross has done in you. It's not an option. It's not even a prospect. It's not something that's in the future. It's not a thing still in progress. It's a reality that if you're in Christ, your life is, is to be lived toward him, a life of obedience. But what's that obedience like? You see, that's an imp- entirely important thing. Is it obedience like the kind of begrudging obedience that children sometimes have towards parents? Go wash dishes, son. All right, dad, but I hate it. And the whole time he's washing dishes. Half the thing of soap is gone. He's been scrubbing them as if he's trying to take paint off of glass that's not even painted. You just wonder, what's going on here? He's angry. He's getting it done. The sort of obedience that grits its teeth and that conspires against the one it obeys. It's not that kind of obedience. Paul says the Christian is engaged in a relationship with God of obedience from the heart. Now that's at least a term we need to look into, isn't it? Not begrudging obedience, but obedience based on the things that affect the heart of man. Our delights, our loves, the things we want to do. Obeying God because the things he delights in are the things we also delight in. The things that cause him joy also give our hearts 
joy. And that it's not a heavy yoke and it's not a burdensome obedience. But that it's the bond of love in the Christian. You do what delights God. You obey his word. Why? Because you love him. And you want to see him happy. That's at the very heart of it. Meaningful gospel obedience based on love. But again, you have to look and say, well, who started this? Well, this is something that God has done. And here in verse 17, we're expressed as being very passive in this. Our love for God and our obedience to his rule in our lives, it comes from the obedience that Christ has had for us. His obedience has set the culture of love for our hearts. Why would we love him? Because he first loved us. But it's not only love. It's not just love in the abstract. But it's love that has the object of faith. Obedient from the heart to what? To the standard of teaching to which we were committed. To a standard of teaching. We love God because of the truth of what he's done for us. Because of the things that we believe. It's not just love over here hanging on its own affections. But it's love joined with the truth. It's love because Jesus died for us. It's love because he was raised from the dead. It's love because he suffered for us in our place. And so it's strong and it's sure and it's as inviolable and as the truth of God. It is faith that sustains the love of Christian obedience. And so friends, I just call you to this. You can't just live these lives that are overjoyed with the gospel but have no sense of what the gospel is. Those things go together. They're wed, locked tightly to one another. And that has a magnificent effect on us. And in verse 18... He expresses what it is that having been set free from sin, we become slaves of righteousness. There's a change in us. We serve a different master. We have a different Lord. And he loves us. And he gave his son for us. And he's the bridegroom. And he delights to call us his children. And he calls us to come near to him and to hear his voice. It's very simple. And it's very wonderful. And whenever Paul is using the language of slavery, he's very aware of his hearers. He's, he's writing to the church in Rome, and they're probably people who either are slaves or formerly slaves actually in the congregation. He knows this is hot language, and it's going to have a big effect. Just as in our day, it wouldn't probably do all that well for a minister or any person that's going to give any sort of public discourse uh, to title things on the language of slavery. Paul knows this. In fact, Paul looks it right in the face. And in verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's using the language or the depiction of slavery to, at least in part, describe the relationship that the Christian has to God in loose form. It's an analogy, but not in all of its facets. It's an analogy that is imperfect. And he's calling us to something that's even greater to that. And we have the 
next imperative that he calls us to near the close of verse 19. He says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, and then here, here's the command, here's the imperative, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He's saying everything that's been true, all the things that I've just told you, now should affect the way you live. Not that you just go and do sin and godlessness and live a life on your own terms, but rather because of the love of God, give yourself over to him and serve him and become more like him to think like him and speak like him and act like him as his bond servant so that you'll be sanctified or to put it in a different phrase holy like him that's the command if you'll give yourself to anything Christian don't give it to sin give yourself to God in love so that you might be like him and that's the call on you Christians Don't use grace and the forgiveness of the cross as an opportunity to live as if God doesn't exist. But think on its love and use it as every good reason to live for him in love with God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures and all of its truth. We thank you. That, Lord, you have called us to yourself by the blood of your Son. O Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. O Lord, your word is truth. O Lord, may our love have its object in faith. O Father in heaven, we submit all these things to you, the one who submitted us to the authority of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.